From branding expert in New York City to urban farming on the northern beaches of Sydney, in this episode we get a glimpse of the future of farming. From Blue Tribe Media, this is the Good Business Podcast, the show where we talk to business leaders, social entrepreneurs and innovators about aligning profit with purpose and how you can make doing good, good for business. Now here's your host, James McGregor. Welcome to episode six of the Good Business Podcast. In this episode, I've visited Hugh McGilligan, who's the CEO at Sprout Stack at their facility in the northern beaches of Sydney, uh, which is Australia's only commercial scale vertical farm, where they grow a range of nutritious, delicious, sustainable, and locally grown salads for the Sydney market with an innovative system using repurposed shipping containers. Now, as a kid, Hugh spent his summers working in traditional agriculture on his uncle's farm in the UK before embarking on a corporate career in branding and advertising, uh, mostly in New York City. After moving to Australia and the arrival of his first child, he began a reappraisal of the important things in life. In this episode, we hear about Hugh's journey from branding expert in New York City to the challenges of building an innovative urban farming business. And you'll also get some practical advice from a branding expert on how to build a brand that your customers love and that also does great things in the world. So let's check it out. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up leading an indoor farming business. So who is Hugh McGilligan? That's a very deep and meaningful question. My background is not in agriculture, other than uh, spending time on farms growing up, trying to earn pocket money over the summer when I was volunteering or voluntold on my um, <laughs> my uncle's farm to pick potatoes or uh, chase sheep around. I actually spent most of the past 15 years in New York City, uh, ultimately as a partner in a brand strategy consulting firm. And my wife dragged me to Australia kicking and screaming, telling me that the uh, Northern Beaches is a much better place to raise a family than the East Village. And she's probably got a point. And when I arrived here and almost immediately had a child, there was, frankly, a bit of an epiphany. There was a a moment in which I realized that I'd spent a lot of time helping write other people's stories, and it was important at this juncture for me to write my own story and for the story to be in some way positively impactful to the world, leave the world a bit of a better place than I found it and leave a positive legacy, figure out a problem that we can solve. And so I applied, you know, I I guess my my innate skills of curiosity and, and, and business acumen or whatever else to what I thought was one of the biggest problems that I could identify, which is which is food safety and food security. So tell us, so we're here at uh, Sprout Stacks facilities. So just to set the scene for everyone. So we're in a, I guess more like a semi-industrial estate and there's a whole lot of shipping containers downstairs um, and effectively what's a large car park growing fresh food. How did Sprout Stack even, where did the idea come from and how? what was the origin story behind Sprout Stack? So look, from a, from a macro trends point of view, something like Sprout Stack has to be the way that we produce food in the future, right? So uh, the numbers speak for themselves. By 2050, we'll have 10 billion people pl- on the planet. Uh, we're going to have to double our food production within that time frame. And the systems that we have in place that were designed during the Industrial Revolution, which is to say food grown on the periphery, transported into cities, are at this point fairly strained and will not scale to the point that will satisfy the population that we'll have in in 20 years time. So something like what we have downstairs has to be the way that food is produced to satisfy the 70% of people who are going to live in urban centers come that time frame. 
I wasn't in the business at its inception. The guys downstairs were and the directors from the from the fund that have bankrolled us have. And they saw these big trends. They saw they saw the movement of uh, and, and the focus to controlled environment agriculture in the US, in Europe, in Israel, and thought there has to be something like this in Australia. There wasn't. And so they decided to start their own. And in, in short, the story is one of trial and error. We've got a, a very a brilliant head of manufacturing, a guy called Michael, who has basically designed the way that the system works downstairs with the hydroponic solution and LED lights and a, and a recycled shipping container to produce uh, vast quantities of highly nutritious, nutrient-dense, sustainable, and delicious fresh projects. So I understand the, the bigger mission and the trends around um, the need for urban agriculture, but the mums and dads out there who are purchasing your product, solving the world's agriculture problems is not a problem they're trying to solve. So what's what's the Sprout Stacks product? Well, what's, what, what is it giving to your ultimate consumer? That's a, that's a great question because I think that there are an awful lot of people who want to be sustainable, want to buy the right option for the planet, but when there's a $2 difference, we'll actually often go for the cheaper product. And what we provide is not just a, a more sustainable produce than stuff that's grown in traditional agriculture, but also produce that is more nutritious. So the average time from harvest to delivery in store from traditional agriculture is about a week. So our largest competitor grows primarily in Victoria, is harvested and then transported in cold chain from the field to uh, to the to the store. It takes on average about a week. We harvest, as you saw downstairs, and we'll deliver to a store within four to twelve hours. Uh, depending on what time of day we're harvesting. That means that the, the food that we deliver is more nutritionally dense because it hasn't uh, undergone the nutritional degradation that takes place with all fresh produce at the, from the point of harvest. The uh, nutritional degradation occurs in a parabolic curve, so it comes off a cliff basically as soon as you, as soon as you cut the stem. And the data that came out of studies from UC Davis in, in California in the 90s say that within three days it's lost 30% of its nutritional value. So what we're, what we're producing is, is, is product that is nutritionally dense, that is fresher, that is delicious and nutritious, and that is free from pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides, and also has a much smaller environmental impact than traditional agriculture. How much work did you do with your end consumers, the end customer, in terms of developing and testing this and feedback you've been getting from them? What how did you go about validating that people were uh, wanted that sort of product? That's actually a really interesting question because up until recently, we'd done very little. We kind of knew that we would that we we're onto a good thing, but we'd done very little to tell and to do anything to tell our story. Um, and in part, the reason why I took this job is because I, I'm good at telling stories, and I'm able to understand the consumer and actually talk to the consumer and convert their needs into a product proposition. In speaking to our customers, though, what we've found is that. While the sustainability angle is interesting, while the technology interesting aspect is interesting, what is really valuable to them is this local, the, 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 the local story, that we're a local business, that we're up against the big guys, and that we are ticking all of the boxes around food safety, food security, and food input, so understanding where your food comes from, that, uh, that, that, and that's actually shifted the way that we talk about our produce. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important thing for people to understand. So we, so we, we work exclusively in environmental social impact type projects, but very rarely do we ever lead with the environmental social impact. So we, we have a saying within our businesses, um, sell them what they want, but give them what they need. Uh, and by that we mean it's basically sustainability by stealth. So, you know, come up with 
a solution that solves a problem for your customer or a need for your customer. And as a consequence of them using your solution, then you deliver on the environmental social outcomes, but you don't lead with that. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's like the cherry on the cake. It's a nice thing to have, but most consumers don't necessarily go out, wake up in the morning going, I need to solve the world's agriculture problems, for example. They want to go, I want to feed my kids healthy food and make sure they're you know, fit and healthy and I know where it comes from. I'm not putting things in my body that I don't know what's in it. Correct. And look, Sprout Stack and actually all controlled environment agriculture is the solution to a series of problems that are increasingly common currency amongst at least an educated, I'd say, large minority at this point. That around, where does my food come from? What is the total cost of ownership of that food? How much water does it take to produce? How far has it been transported? How many how many fertilizers or nutrients went into went into producing? How much carbon goes into producing that much that that fertilizer, etc., etc., etc. We we are leaner, greener, meaner than than uh, than traditional agriculture, and as such, we provide a a great product that has all of those underlying attributes that consumers are increasingly looking for, whether explicitly or implicitly. I assume that it just all went swimmingly, right? There was never any problems from day one. Once the idea was born, and it's been smooth sailing. Um, what's what were some of the challenges that um, Sprout Stacks had to overcome? I guess from day one, because for example, I understand um, some of your early business models was the original concepts about how the business would scale uh, and grow turned out to not work. I guess our greatest challenge that we're in the process of solving is this disconnect that it currently exists between a lot of consumers and the food that they are buying. A lot of kids have no idea that where a steak comes from other than from a plastic packet they buy at the supermarket and where apples come from, where greens come from. I have no idea how complicated and or complex the system is that delivers food to the supermarket and therefore fail to understand the value proposition that, we're, that we've presented. That said, as I said earlier, the common currency, that those problems have increasingly become in common currency for a large number of consumers, educated, wealthy consumers and tend, tend to understand our proposition. Yeah, it turns out it's very difficult to grow plants in a controlled environment. Um, the, 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 within the ag tech space, there's businesses that lean more towards agriculture and there's businesses that lean more towards tech. And the ones that lean more towards tech tend to have a much harder time because they're run by technologists, computer scientists, developers and whatever, who assume that you can apply the same metrics of control to agriculture as you can to computer systems. And you, you just can't. So we've one of our challenges was actually finding that nice middle ground between dealing with a biological system like a plant and harnessing the value of technology. And it was never it was never a, a straight course, but for the most part, it was up and to the right. So we've we've had some success, and and as we've scaled on our trial and error, we've iterated and uh, got a system that downstairs that seems to be working and uh, and is scalable. Do you have a process that you go through to test and refine and iterate? Not so much a formalized process. Yeah, I mean, yes, of course we track all of our metrics we track our harvest we track our biomass uh, yield from each of the process we have an R&D lab in which we trial uh, things out but at least up until now most of that has been done kind of an ad hoc in an ad hoc way and, and refining from learning and seeing and, and, and applying so putting on your branding hat so looking at you know, you've got this environmental social impact story around your product how do you how do you bring branding into that piece what, what is the, what is the role of branding in terms of getting that product to market that's a brilliant question because it's something that we're actually evolving right now and I, it was put to me very eloquently by one of the store managers from our retail partner who told me that people come to Harris Farms to buy stories. And as of right now, nobody knows our story. 
So our challenge is to tell that story concisely in a way that's meaningful, that's providing value to the people who are willing to pay an extra dollar for our product. And the way that we've done that is to really try and distill our messages down to a single proposition. What's the one thing that we've got? And the one thing that we have got is our location, that we're locally grown. And that we're locally grown and for Sydney. So it basically means we have eradicated food miles. And for some people, that's enough. Right, some people they 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 know that we're we're growing Brookvale. Oh yeah, you're you're my neighbour. I'm sure I'll buy your products. It doesn't really matter what, about all of the other things that cascade from being local, as in being more nutritious because it doesn't have that nutritional degra- degradation. Being more sustainable because it doesn't have the carbon output. Being more an impact for uh, for the community because we hire from disadvantaged communities, for example, or for being an advocate and engaged participant in education. We partner with a lot of local schools, for example, who come and do tours and understand. And try and reconnect kids with the food production. What that means, though, is they're all aspects of being a local producer. So we then need to make sure that everything we do then cascades from being local. So all of our messaging is about being local. Our product packaging currently was all designed because it was the most cost-effective way of bringing our product to market. We're going to invest a little bit more, change the labels to, to convey the provenance of its of the food. So you'll see our labels will evolve from being pretty functional now to being a little bit bigger, giving us more real estate to tell our story. We'll involve the semiotics or the visual language of the northern beaches. So maybe a lighthouse, maybe a pine tree. And even the name of our products will evolve from being, say, the micro mix of a, a mi- micro herbs that we currently sell to the manly micros we've got a brookie bonanza because we've to celebrate our move to brookvale we've decided to, to create a varietal or a salad pack that has celebrates that move to to uh, to our new premises yeah, great. So I hope everyone's listening closely there. Our brains have evolved to minimize calorie consumption. Uh, and if they've got to think too hard to understand your story, then they're going to switch off. So it's distilling it down to that you know, really simple message and using you know, clever things like you know, the manly masculine mix or the Brookvale basil. I don't know. You can take that. You can trademark that if you like. It's an easy way for people to immediately connect to that local story. And look, I mean, the, other, the other thing that as, as a marketer, I learned two really important lessons. The first is that you are not your target audience more often than not. And so you can't take your biases into your product development. Your So you go out and research, go out and learn who, who you're trying to sell to. The second is that nobody cares as much about your brand as you do. You know, we, we've done pop-ups in stores quite consistently over the past couple of months where we've been doing giving free samples in, in, in the supermarket. And it's given us an opportunity to basically stand and observe the salad counter. And watching people make a decision between one brand and another is an instantaneous decision. People walk up and go, uh, and I pick up one and they look at the back to make sure that it's fresh and they put it in there. You, you don't have time to deliver your five key value propositions or your reasons to believe or whatever else. You've got to get your message across consistently and very quickly. Yeah, great. So originally the, the business model, you start off selling equipment. Is that right? So tell us about going, just maybe go back a little bit one step to you know, why didn't that work and what did it evolve to? Yeah, so the, originally the business was conceived around building the hardware. So we've got a, a pretty good process in converting a non-operating refrigerated uh, 40-foot shipping containers into farms. And we thought that the business would be selling those to remote communities, to military bases, to mining towns, etc. Turns out that we weren't able to find much of a market for that. If we did find a market, it would involve so much spoon feeding of how to manage the farm that it soon became 
unscalable. So we haven't entirely rejected that business model. If somebody wants to buy a farm, I'm sure we can come to some sort of understanding. But the it became clear that the best way for us to use this technology was actually to, to grow the produce ourselves to add value to it and then sell it through um uh, sell it sell it through our retail partners so then you went through that you basically tested the market found there was that wasn't right and then you and I assume along the way you learned actually how hard because you said you start off as a technology engineering side mm-hmm. of group so it makes sense that we're going to build some tech and sell it to people uh, mm-hmm. and we're not going to grow fruit and veg or salad type mixes but then obviously you learned along the way that the actual growing part is actually really difficult well yeah look i mean as i said there's an arrogance that comes from the tech side of ag tech that is we should be able to apply technology and everything should work we are much more of the agricultural side of things we have two trained agronomists on staff who manage the farms who you know go out and look at the leaves and and make sure that things are growing as they as you expect them to and if not adjusting and tweaking as as we go so there's an art to agriculture um i grew up knowing that my my uncle was a was a a lifetime farmer and there's a there's an, an intuition from farming that uh, I don't think the technologists have as much respect for. Yeah. So, so what does Sprout Stack look like today? Uh, so, 2019. So, 2019, we have just moved from a shed in Chatswood to this beautiful uh, car park, as you called it, in in Brookvale, which means that we have suddenly unshackled uh, ourselves from a space constraint that we were suffering from. And what that means is we are in the process of expanding rapidly. We moved with three farms. Uh, three operational farms. Farm four is close to completion. Farm five, the raw box uh, for which is will be delivered on in, in a couple of weeks and will be up and operational early in the new year. That means we're going to double output over the course of next year. And we're looking to do that again over the course of the subsequent year. Right now, we are six full-time employees and somewhere between six and eight casual employees. We want to try to grow Uh, and grow our output with a similar number of people so we're not going to blow out our payrolls. We are deeply committed to the triple bottom line, which means that we are prepared to make money and do business, but without sacrificing the economy or, or sorry, the, the environment or without service to the local community. So we're an engaged and very committed member of uh, local education groups like universities and schools. And we and, and, and we, we're going to very much continue that because even if we aren't the future of food production, we want to educate and inspire a next generation of horticulturalists to and, and to get back in touch with with the food that, that that they're consuming. And so, and how how big is your footprint at the moment in terms of distribution areas for your produce? So, our primary offtake agreement, so our primary sales channel, is through Harris Farm Markets. They take about eighty to ninety percent of what we produce, uh, and they have twenty six stores across New South Wales. Therefore, we sell from, I guess, Newcastle in the north down to Bondi in the south, uh, and out to Bowen. Uh, out west, I guess, is probably our footprint. Although we do have a couple of customers out in Tamworth, and we're prepared to engage new customers as long as we, as long as we can, as long as we can deliver to, to them, and and as long as it doesn't take away from that local story, because otherwise it kind of uh, defeats the object, right? The idea is we scale here to the point at which we're profitable, and then the farms that we have become seed corn for to clone the business interstate. So whereas we have a Brookie Bonanza, we might have a Geelong extravaganza in in in, in Melbourne, or I'm going to run out of suburbs, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, Brisbane, right. Perth, Adelaide, etc. Yeah. Uh, and just put it in context, I know when we did the tour earlier, um, we talked about it. Um, what's, what's sort of the production capacity 
of a, one, of, one of these shipping containers. So each container has about a capacity of about 10,000 units, which is a 10,000 pots. And that would be 10,000 heads of lettuce. But because we don't just produce lettuce, that can also be peas or sprouts or amaranth or beets, um, depending on what we grow. We uh, A lettuce growth cycle is around four, four and a half weeks. So we're producing... A good way to think about it is each of these containers has the agricultural equivalent of about a hectare's worth of space, just in terms of the number of turns we're able to produce per year. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So I think before we worked out, it was roughly 2,500 head of lettuce a week, just to get people their heads in from one shipping container. So so if there's other people out there who are trying to launch a new business or a, a social enterprise or a business that really focuses on you know, more than just profit, what advice would you have for them? It comes back to that earlier point that we were talking about that it, it, it's about articulating the customer proposition and being really faithful to it. it, it it's it's very easy to get distracted and to, to, to muddy your message around what are all of the other benefits that you're actually providing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm super proud of the, the, the environmental impact that we're having. I'm super proud of the, the fact we hire from disadvantaged communities. But ultimately, as you said, the consumer doesn't really care about that. They like to know that they're probably doing some, that, that they're buying a product that's somewhat aligned to how they feel. But uh, frankly, they want to buy a salad. And so long as there's, there's a competitive Consumer consumer proposition first and foremost. I think that's the most important thing. And so, I mean, of course, I'm a brand guy. So you give a guy a hammer, he thinks everything's a, a nail. I actually think this is always a communication problem or a communication challenge, which is to say, why is this clamshell of letters significantly better than the competitors' clamshell of letters? Why well, is because it's produced locally? Yeah, that's the fundamentals. I think for any good social or environmental impact business, is that you need to solve a really painful problem for your customers and have a great product that solves it really, really well. And then as a consequence of that, then you get your environmental social impact as opposed to... But I think the story also from a branding point of view, I think that story is really important as well behind the product because there is certainly the millennial generation, but also even just in the general consumer, there is a big shift now to people wanting to understand where their products come from and how it's been sourced and is it ethically produced. And they want to know that, but they if it costs them $2 more, then they probably won't pay for that. But they just, But if it's between your brand and another brand and all all intents and purposes are equal, then they'll go for the purpose-driven brand every time. Absolutely. So, yeah. So if people want to purchase some produce or get in touch or learn more about what Sprout Stack's doing, what's the best way for them to get in touch or learn more? So if you want to buy the product, go to Harris Farm Markets. If you want to get in touch, uh, drop me an email, uh, hugh at sproutstack.co. Great. Awesome. So let's wrap up with the Mad Minute. So five questions, 60 seconds. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? We try everything twice. The first time to see if it kills you, the second time to see if you like it. <laughs> I like that one. What's your favorite business book? Uh, so I'm a bit torn between about this. There's, there's a, a book called Food or War, which is not really a business book, but it certainly cap- encapsulates a lot of what we uh, why we're doing what we're doing right now. Uh, that said, as a bu- business book, I think you can't do better than, than uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Yeah, great. Have you got a favorite business tool or resource that you use for delivering the impact through the business? I'm going to cheat on this one because uh, we have a variety of different tools, but ultimately the best thing you can invest in is your team. And I know that I am standing on the shoulders of giants, that, that, that I couldn't be here without my head of production without my head of manufacturing who are brilliant consumer professionals on whose shoulders this um, this business rests. Have you got a favorite quote? Uh, I'd rather be ashes than dust. I think it's Jack London. I can't remember the rest of the quote, but it's, it's about taking risks. And if you could go back in time and give your 20-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Take more risks. Not to sound too hippy-dippy about it, but you, 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 if, if you 
leap the universe conspires to catch you and 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 put you where you're supposed to be um and i it took me too long to figure that out and i took and i forewent chances that i perhaps should have gone with because i was too worried about taking on too much debt or or or, or if i stuffed it up what it might look like life's not a spectator sport i gotta get exactly. in there and have a go for sure so hugh mcgillian from sprout stack thanks for your time and um look forward to seeing sprout stack produce all over the country not too not too distant future brilliant thanks very much james Blue Tribe Basil, anyone? Some great advice there from Hume Gilligan at Sprout Stack. So as we discuss in this episode, it's really important that your product or service solves a problem for your customer because not every customer is going to be motivated by your social and environmental mission. So one of the most important skills for any business for good is to be able to sell your idea or your product. Our free ebook on selling sustainability will help you do just that. And you can access this through the show notes. Speaking of show notes, you can access the notes for today's episode by simply visiting www.bluetribe.co forward slash podcast and check out episode number six. So if you liked today's episode, make sure you click that subscribe or follow button and leave a rating for us. Coming up in the next episode. There's a fear, right? Like when you start something that you, especially when you put so much time and energy into something, there's a fear of, you know, it's not going to work or what if it fails, then what? And you don't want to have to go back to all your friends and family and say, well, I couldn't do it. How having a clear social mission helped this entrepreneur overcome the fear of failure to make something great happen in the world. Well, that's it for another episode of the Good Business Podcast. But before you go, you might want to hang on for a few minutes to hear the audio site tour of Sprout Stacks facility right after I sign off. Thanks for listening. I'm James McGregor. Until next time. So this looks very funky. So we're looking at basically a shipping container with a purple colored light. I assume that's particular wavelengths for the plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're in a standard uh, non-operating refrigerated 40-foot shipping container. Yep. Uh, the type of which you'll find in the back of any boat traveling the high seas. Um, it's been stripped out, cleaned, uh, and then you're looking at uh, six bays uh, within which we have um, trays of 20 uh, plants, be they lettuce, micro herbs, micro greens, sprouts, um, pea tendrils. And uh, the funky colored lights are because the plants actually grow from the two ends of the light spectrum, Mm -hmm. um, blue and and red, and everything else is kind of um, an inefficient use of the energy we use to generate the light. So we focus on uh, the the, the two ends of the spectrum and strip out all of the other light. Okay. Um, this, this is the, the, the operation center, so we're now in the middle of the container, yep. um, and this is the brain. So the, in here, we have a environmental monitoring unit that's measuring temperature, humidity, and uh, CO2 levels. Yep. Uh, temperature and humidity are controlled by the air conditioning unit and the CO2 by this uh, CO2 canister with a doser on yep. the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's automatically retained within a, uh, or maintained but within then, a yeah, So do you run the CO2 levels higher than they would be outside? Correct, about okay. 800 parts per million. Uh, same system for the hydroponic solution. Mm-hmm. This is our tank of hydroponic solution. And on a regular basis, anywhere between one to four times a day, the trays are flooded by the pump system yep. up to a level here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then drains, so drain right. automatically with, with gravity. As they go through the system, this uh, dosing node measures the 
uh, nutrition levels and the pH of yep. the fluid to make sure it's appropriate for, for our plants. Okay. And where does the nutrition, what, what's in those containers? MPK. Well, there, there are 11 uh, herbs and spices. Okay. Colonel Sanders herbs and spices. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a nitrogen, phosphate, potassium, nutrient mix. Okay, right. Um, yep. And it's adjusted automatically. And how long do the plants stay in here? So once you've loaded up all your racks, yeah, um, I can see plants at different states of growth. Yeah. Or do they all come in at the same time or there are different batches? They all come in in different batches. Uh, each of these tags that we have on them have uh, a date that they were in which oh, yeah. they were yep. So that was planted a week ago. Mm -hmm. um, and they all have different grow length of growth cycles. So uh, a, a lettuce is four and a half weeks, mm -hmm. sprouts are generally two two weeks, and everything else is kind of in between. Right, okay. Um, that compares favorably to uh, the growth cycles in traditional agriculture because we grow with a consistent level of light, 16 yep. hours a day, mm -hmm. uh, and a highly nutrified solution. So they, uh, they, they, they're never short of water, they're never short of nutrients, they're never short of light. And so our, our growth cycles are generally 30% shorter than they you'd find in the field. Okay. Um, which means that this that the farm is um, the equivalent, one farm like this is the equivalent of about a hectare's worth of traditional farmland. Um, well, at least in terms of output of the biomass yield. Mm -hmm. Because we're extracting around 10 to 12 harvests per year from our farms, whereas a traditional agriculture you might get one, uh, maximum three. Yeah. Um, we are uh, a much more concentrated version of, uh, of agriculture. Yeah, wow. Awesome. Looks very impressive, very high tech. It's cool, isn't it? I mean, it, it's it's uh, uh, you can talk about controlled environment agriculture to you blue in the face, but until you actually walk into one of these funky mm. looking farms, yeah, it, it, uh, it didn't, I wasn't sold. But when I yeah. walked in here, I was like, okay, well, this is the job I need to take, because this is yeah. in some way, shape or form the future of food.